We're going to be in Luke chapter 14 today. Jesus once said, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it weren't so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and take you to be with me. It's a very famous verse. Um, I thought about that and decided to, to see what the Bible had to say about preparation. And it's full of talk about the preparations Father God has made for his children. According to the Apostle Paul, God prepared in advance the good works that he wants us to do. He prepared them in advance. Um, Jesus spoke of the kingdom prepared for, for you since the beginning of the world. God said the author of Hebrews is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. It's the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Eye has not seen, ears not heard, mind has not conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast. According to the author of Hebrews, the salvation that's coming is even now ready to be revealed. It's already prepared. And it's not just preparations in general the Bible talks about, but preparations for a party. Think of that 23rd Psalm. You prepare a table, a, a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. The, Isaiah 25, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. In the last chapters of the Bible, we see the, the feast that ends all feasts, the wedding reception of the Lamb. See, God's not only a planner, he's a party planner. He is the party planner. He loves a good party. So, is that how you think of God? That he's full of joy and loves sharing his joy with others? Or is God, in your mind, more like the old white-bearded curmudgeon that you see in Renaissance paintings and newspaper comics? Jesus has inside information about what God is like. And he knew his Father to be the joyful God who loves a good party. That comes out frequently in the stories Jesus told, what we call parables. There is one genre of parables that's not about how things are or should be, and still less about how we should act, but about what God is like. Jesus told many of those parables. Uh, so, for example, when we read the story about the landowner who gave the same pay to people, whether they worked for 12 hours for one hour, we shouldn't think of this as a prescription for modern employment practices. We shouldn't go to our boss and say, look, I only work three hours, but I want to get paid for eight. Jesus is talking about what God is like in that parable. And since Jesus' stories are often about what God is like, it's particularly interesting that they frequently feature a party. There's a party held at midnight in the parable of the ten virgins. The party in the parable of the wedding reception. There are parties in the parable of the lost coin, the lost sheep, uh, 
and the so-called parable of the lost son. And it's worth noting, too, that many of the party parables were given when Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, knowing that when he got there, he would be killed. If the stories of the lost sheep and lost coin represent what God is like, and they're clearly intended to do that, it seems like God looks for reasons to throw a party. The parable of the lost son features a big party. It's no dinner party for a few close friends, but a blowout, a shindig, a full-scale kill-the-fatted-calf gala. To get our minds wrapped around this, we need to know something about what Jews believed. In Jesus' day, Jews divided the timeline of human history into two parts. The present age, which began with the creation and the fall of Adam, and the age to come in which God will put right everything this age has put wrong. First century Jews believed that this bridge between the ages, between this present age and the age to come, would feature a cosmic bash, the party to end all parties. That's the celebration that Isaiah had in mind when he wrote, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich foods for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He'll remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. This end-of-the-age party was sometimes called the Great Banquet. It had a variety of names. One of them is the Feast in the Kingdom of God. It's that feast Jesus had in mind when he said at the, the, the Last Supper, his Passover, his extraordinary Passover with his disciples, I'll not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the Kingdom of God comes. In the Revelation, it's called the Wedding Supper. So think wedding reception, dancing, laughing, celebrating the Wedding Supper of the Lamb. God the Father wants to share that with us. His attitude is just like the attitude of his son who revealed him to us. His son who once said to him, Father, I want those you've given me to be with me where I am. I want them to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. I want them to be with me. That's what God is like. That may be hard for us to grasp because it's not so much what we're like. In our experience, there's only so much to go around. So if you share it, you have less. But God, he knows how to throw a party. When he shares, the fun isn't divided, it's multiplied. The one throwing the great feast, remember, he knows how to multiply fish and loaves and turn water into wine. So there's going to be plenty for everyone. And not just quantity, but quality, the best of meats, the finest of wines. And it's in the story of the wedding feast, he's saving the best for last. In Luke 14, Jesus is at a Sabbath day dinner where most of the guests, I don't know how to put this in a better way, but they're stuffed shirts. And while he's there, he heals a man with edema. If you have a King James version, it'll say dropsy, a fluid buildup, probably in the legs, possibly around the heart. 
And the guests are shocked because this is Sabbath. Uh, the Episcopal priest, Robert Kaplan, compares what Jesus did to being at a formal dinner party. I mean, black tie event. And somebody pulling the tablecloth off the table, putting the guy with the bad back on the table and doing a chiropractic adjustment on him. The guests would have been outraged. Jesus finishes healing this guy, sends him on his way. But if the people were hoping to get back to a nice normal Sabbath day dinner in the house of a respected Pharisee, they were disappointed. Because Jesus goes right on to insult the guests by calling attention to their status-seeking ways. And then suggests the host might be better off to invite a different class of folk to future dinners. Uh, the ones from Skid Row would be an improvement. The people who are down on their luck, the people who don't know a truffle from a turnip. People who invite those kind of folks, Jesus says, will be richly repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. That's when one of these guys, probably a stuffed shirt, speaks up and piously says, blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And I'm pretty sure he said God like God. Blessed is the man who will eat in the feast at the kingdom of God. He, he probably had his doubts about whether Jesus was going to be numbered among them. Um, I'm guessing he thought he himself would be there. Now, I don't want to be unjust to this guy. Maybe this wasn't false piety. Maybe this was a genuine attempt by a sensitive soul to ease the tension, which in this room was so thick you could cut it with a knife. But whatever his motive, Jesus used that comment, blessed is the man who will eat in the feast of the kingdom of God, to introduce yet another one of his party-themed stories. Let me read it. Luke 14, 16 through 24, Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. So after he did that, sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. The scholar Kenneth Bailey says that a party for two to four guests would require butchering a chicken or two. It was a duck for five to eight guests, a kid for 10 to 15 guests, a sheep for 15 to 35 guests, and a calf for more than that. The party Jesus is describing here is like a two or three calf party. I mean, this is the event of the season. People invited to a party like that would receive two invitations. So the first required an RSVP. So you get one well in advance, you'd look at your calendar, you'd say, yes, I can come. The second was sent on the day itself. So all these people have already been invited and they've already accepted the invitation. 
The second invite was sent on the day itself. A servant would come to your house and say, everything's ready, come on over, the party's about to begin. The first invitation was sent to all the right people. They all RSVP'd their intentions to attend. But when the day came and the second invitation arrived, one after another, and, and the, what the Greek says is one and all, sent their regrets saying they wouldn't be able to attend. One says he just got married. Another says that he just signed a major real estate deal. Another has bought new farm equipment, has to take possession of it. So really, these are big ticket excuses, but they're still excuses. The guy getting married, he knew when he was going to get married. So why did he RSVP in the first place? Doesn't make sense. Uh, the land deal doesn't hold water either. If the guy bought the property sight unseen, what's his rush now to see it after his money's gone? So we're left to wonder, why, and this is intentional, why these people would back out of going to a banquet given by this important person. So in the text, Jesus describes him is an oikos despates, uh, uh, a house master. So think aristocrat. And he gives him the title Lord. Why refuse to go to a party that's going to be the event of the season? Now, it could be these folks don't play well with others, that they're all introverts or misanthropes. It might be that they have some unspoken qualm, some internal resistance. Maybe they experience a lot of anxiety at parties and they're afraid of looking foolish. But all of them, one and all, that doesn't make sense. So Jesus probably meant, and his hearers probably understood this, but it goes right over our heads, another meaning. He probably intended his hearers to understand the refusals as part of a shared uh, intention, a conspiracy, if you will, to reject this Lord and Master. This kind of thing did happen in the ancient Middle East, happens today. Uh, uh, let me give you an example. In the ancient Middle East, when a ruler's authority was being challenged, maybe by uh, someone from another land or in whatever it might be, the invitees might decline his invitation as a way of distancing themselves from him or of signifying to his opponent their willingness to change sides. The refusal to attend the party was an intentional rejection of the Lord who was giving the party. Jesus and his hearers would understand that. Upon their rejection, Lord Party Giver does something entirely unexpected. Instead of calling off the party because the people he invited all declined, he went looking for other party goers. So verse 21, the master tells his servants, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the, the blind, and the lame. I want them here before the food gets cold. But even after the servant brought these people, there's still room, so the Lord sends him out again, this time to the roads and country lanes, told him to make them come in so that my house will be full. So these are not the kind of guests who got invited to swanky parties. You're more likely, you and I are more likely to get an invitation to a state dinner than these people were to get invited to a party like this. Some of them were beggars. None of them had anything to offer. No money, no influence, 
no political power. They couldn't even vote. That first set of people, the ones who thought they had something going for them, they wouldn't come to this party now under any circumstances. They wouldn't be caught dead at a party with the kind of people that the crazy Lord party giver was inviting. That would put them on the same footing with beggars. Why does the master tell his servant to make the people come? Wouldn't they jump at a chance to get the best meal they'd ever eaten? Probably not. People like the ones mentioned here, they never got invited to big soirees like this. And even if by some crazy mix-up one of them did, he'd know better than to accept. To attend a party like this put a person in a position of debt. So this is the mindset in the, all around the Mediterranean in the first few centuries. If you accepted an invitation to a party, you would be required to reciprocate, which the people mentioned here could never do. So the master says, make them come in because he knew they knew this wasn't their kind of party. It's as if the master is saying to the servant, tell them not to worry about repaying me. I know they can't. I don't even want them to. I just want them to come and let's have a party. All right, now let's step back a little so we can get some perspective on who God is as represented in this story and perhaps where we fit in. So first, the God that Jesus reveals to us in this story is not the cosmic killjoy of popular religion. If anyone ever loved a good party, it's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let that sink in. Secondly, this God is not a snob. He doesn't exclude people because of their race or ethnicity or socioeconomic status. He doesn't care, frankly, if you're the brightest light or the dullest bulb in the house. See, we're all pretty dull. He's never worried that his team is going to get stuck with the last kid on the playground. He loves having that last kid on his team. He knows he's going to win anyways, so he might just pick him first. Nor is he a God who is always keeping score. And from my experience in pastoral ministry, I know a lot of people serve this God. The one who's always keeping his books, writing down every bad thing, every good thing. That's a stumbling block for people. See, God has never said, you owe me one. I got you out of that jam, you owe me one. I mean, to even think that is just silly. We don't owe him one. We owe him everything. And he knows we have nothing with which to repay him. We can be grateful to him or not. We can love him or not. We can give him ourselves and be his man or woman or not, but we can't repay him. Real estate in the new heaven and new earth is not offered on a land contract. You don't make payments. It's not that no payment is necessary. It's that no payment is allowed. You might be able to leverage a spot 
in hell. But heaven isn't for sale. Hell is a concession to those stubborn, foolish people who insist on paying their own way. The ones who turn up their noses at charity and persist in trying to justify themselves. Thinking of such folks, Capon says, grace doesn't sell. You can hardly give it away because it works only for losers and no one wants to stand in their line. The world of winners will not buy free forgiveness because that threatens to let the riffraff into the supper of the lamb. If we're so afraid of being numbered with the losers that we insist on paying our own way, we're going to miss the party. And that's a shame. God really wants us there. He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, and he's determined to have his house full. If you want to come to the party, and it's really more than that, if you want to join the family of the joyful Lord party giver, Stop trying to impress. Stop trying to repay. Don't make excuses. Just accept the invitation delivered by Jesus Christ and purchased with his blood. The message the servant carried in Jesus' story is the one God's Spirit brings to us today. Come. For everything is now ready. The preparations have been made. And you're invited. Let's take a moment and pray. If you're ready to accept that invitation, I would encourage you to do that. Lord, we only get 70 or 80 years on average, which isn't long enough for us to see who you really are. But I pray that you will open our eyes more and more to your goodness, your power, and your love. I ask you to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll sing.